Minute past the hour of six o'clock, and uh, you may have thought because uh, there was some different theme music on it that maybe there was another show here. Not so. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he, and uh, not for nothing, I decided to start the show with a different type of theme music. Um, I've always loved the song Watching the Wheels by John Lennon, mainly because I thought it kind of sort of at different times in my life applied to me. And this is one of those times, so that's why I decided to use it. Now, I can't ruminate on this for too long because we got a lot of stuff to cover between now and 7 o'clock Eastern time. First, rest in peace, the great voice of Percy Sledge has been stilled. He was 74 years of age. Uh, Some people might say, well, you know, he was a one-hit wonder kind of guy. When a man loves a woman has become a classic, it is stood the test of time. It was made almost a half century ago, and, and yet even now, you can go to people's weddings, you can, you can go to all kinds of events and still hear other interpretations of When a Man Loves a Woman, or somebody may play the original Percy Sledge version. It was one of those indelible classics, so we mourn the passing of Percy Sledge at the age of 74. Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. Now, you know, we've had Ted Cruz. We've had Rand Paul. We've had, uh, what's his face there, uh, Marco Rubio. They've all decided to run. But, of course, everybody's fascinated with Hillary, Uh, mainly because there doesn't seem to be any viable opposition to her candidacy. It doesn't look like anybody's going to try and make a run against her in any of the Democratic primaries. Contrast this with uh, 2007, when it appeared that there were a number of people who were going to run against her uh, for the Democratic nod, John Edwards, until he imploded, a bunch of different people. Well, that's not the case this time around. Uh, Although I think her camp would not necessarily like a coronation, it appears as though that's what's up. Now, it's interesting to me that some of the biggest flack to Hillary Clinton is coming not from Republicans, not from the right wing, but from her left flank. I heard uh, on a radio show the other day, two people, two callers in a row, progressive callers, I think, refer to Hillary Clinton as a fascist. There are people who uh, will look at what she had to do, not just with Benghazi, but with the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya when she was Secretary of State. Uh, They will point at any number 
of non-progressive positions or actions that she's taken. And of course, the latest to kind of twist the knife a little bit was none other than the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, who uh, explicably or inexplicably, when he was on Meet the Press, now, mind you, Meet the Press doesn't usually have big city mayors on as a matter of course. In fact, you know, they'll have John McCain on in a half second, but they don't, generally speaking, call on big city mayors. Well, they called on Bill de Blasio, and he was asked up front, straight up, are you endorsing Hillary? Not yet, was his paraphrased answer. No, I want to see some meat on the bones. I want to see some policy. Now, this would not be all that big a deal were it not for the fact that it was Hillary who plucked Bill de Blasio out of relative obscurity to run her successful 2000 Senate campaign. Uh, and, of course, we all know, well, no, but probably those of you who don't, who are listening who are not New Yorkers don't know, he went from that to a city council seat to public advocate to mayor. Um, he wants to be a player, does Bill de Blasio. Maybe holding up on this as, you know, I mean, there are people outside the, uh, the city of New York who from the minute the last vote was counted in the 2013 election that he won, started saying his city's going back to the 70s. As a matter of fact, the guy who ran against him, Joe Lotus, said this. City's going back to the 1970s. Crime, drugs, anarchy in the streets. Well, it hasn't happened. But there are still people who call him a socialist mayor, who says he doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just, he's this, he's that, he's the other. Well, in this case, he's trying to be a player by waiting his endorsement until it means more than it does the same day Hillary announces she's running. See, that's called politics, party people. And to me, that's largely the reason why de Blasio said or didn't say what he didn't say. Now, the other part of this is, and this is interesting because it's in an article in the New York Times, Hillary Clinton starts to detail rationale for run. Excuse me? Rationale for run? In other words, why are you running? You're, as Herm Edwards said about football, you play to win the game. The rationale is she wants to be president. The rationale is she wants to be the first female president. The rationale is she wants to wield the same kind of power that her husband wielded and 40-odd other people before her have wielded. She wants to be president. She wants the big gig. She tried for it before, and Barack Obama didn't end around her. So uh, senior advisor to Mitt Romney says her message has to be pretty well-baked. It's like, what have you been thinking about this whole time? Hey, she didn't have to run. She didn't have to announce, you know, three months ago. These folks are all jockeying. And by the way, they're jockeying in large measure for media attention and by inference, your attention. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make you, whether it's Rand Paul or Hillary Clinton, sit up and take notice. Now, the progressive would-be standard bearer has already said she ain't running. That would be Elizabeth Warren. And I, and I got to be honest, it would warm the cockles of my heart to have Elizabeth Warren 
as a candidate. Not because I hate Hillary Clinton, not because I think she's a fascist, but because I believe that competition is good, that there need not be, in this century, a coronation. And Elizabeth Warren has a spouse. And, and see, again, you know, people get up there and say, well, well, you know, she's not perfect. Yo, wake up and smell the coffee. There is no such thing as a perfect politician, all right? Let's, let's get real about this. Politics is about the acquisition and use of power. Therefore, there is not going to be perfection in anybody. I don't care whether it's George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Barack Obama. I don't care who it is. None of them are perfect. They're human beings. And they're politicians. But I would, I, Elizabeth Warren, in terms of the public positions that she's taken, policy positions with regard to banks, with regard to the economy, with regard to income inequality, she's in my wheelhouse. I don't know about the rest of y'all. So she's not running, though. And see, my thing is, quite simply, you know, I don't go for all of that, don't let the enemy of the good be whatever, whatever that dribble is that people spout when it comes to why they should, you know, why they should vote for one person because they're the lesser of two evils. I'm not a lesser of two evils kind of guy. However, I am a person who says, I want somebody to win, all right? This is, politics is not really about uh, joking around uh, or, you know, doing this, unless you're Harold, the late Harold Stassen, and I'm sure many of you don't even remember who he was, uh, you don't just be doing it to do it. If there are people who are unhappy with Hillary Clinton, you can, you can vote for whoever you want. You can vote for the Green Party candidates, this woman named Jill Stein who's running, who I get her material all the time. You can run. You can vote for her. It's a free country. You can vote for anybody. You can write yourself in. I prefer, and it's just my own preference, I prefer to vote for somebody who I believe has a chance of winning. All right? Because, and that, that means making some trade-offs. Let's be real about this. You make trade-offs when you deal with politicians. You know, first thing for me, given the level of corruption across this country, I would hope that somebody I'd vote for for president would not be corrupt. Now, some might argue that's a tall order, given the amount of money that's in politics the amount of money that is contributed to a candidate just so somebody can get their phone calls returned. And you think it may be trivializing it. It's not. People want influence. Koch brothers don't contribute to candidates or form the American Legislative Exchange uh, Council because, you know, they're so enamored of politics. They like influence. They like access to the corridors of power. And all of this stuff, I mean, they I don't know how many of y'all noticed this, but they got an ad on TV now talking about how wonderful it is to work for Coke Industries. Have y'all seen this? Guy with a hard hat on? Yeah, man. I'm all in with this. You see, it's about power and influence. And Citizens United changed the game on power and influence. It meant, uh, as James Brown used to say, you could pull the sheet off of it. And that's what we have happening now. And, you know, 
it's a, a situation that, uh, much like police reform uh, and some of the, you know, some of the arguments about that, and we'll get into that a little bit later on because I got plenty to say about that. Um, it's one of those situations that you have to look at very closely and decide where your interests are. If your interests lead you to the conclusion that Hillary Clinton is an unacceptable candidate because of what she's done in the past, she's a fascist, she's a this, she's a that, she's the other, fine. That's your opinion. That's cool. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I don't care. My thing is, why would you not vote for somebody who has a shot at winning? And, you know, if you're looking for an ideal candidate who has a shot at winning, you may be asking for too much in this society. Not with the influence of money, on, particularly on presidential elections. So anyway, that's about Hillary Clinton. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking with our first guest of the evening. His name is James Parrott. He's one of the smartest human beings I know. And he's going to talk a little bit about uh, an issue that is, to me, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And that is wages for New Yorkers. Average everyday, well, the rich too, but average everyday New Yorkers. And there appears to be some good news in that regard. So Jim, Par uh, Jim James Parrott, the Deputy Director, Chief Economist of the Fiscal Policy Institute, will be joining us momentarily, and we're going to talk to him all about that, because I think it's important. And by the way, the Fiscal Policy Institute is one of those, uh, one of those institutions that, you know, I, I, first of all, they say, uh, uh, they call them left-leaning, you know, that they call the Manhattan Institute right-leaning. They call the Fiscal Policy Institute left-leaning. I'm not real deep into labels any more than I am deep into talking points. You know, uh, some people actually like talking points. I don't know why, but, I, you know, I can't do radio based on talking. I can't do it, you know, uh, mainly because I was raised a contrarian, and there are times when I can't, follow my own logic, much less somebody else's that sends me an email and says, this is what you ought to be talking about. And believe me, in my old age, I still get some of them. Not as many as I used to, but I still do get some of them. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones, Deputy Director, Chief Economist for the Fiscal Policy Institute. Good evening, Mr. James Parrott. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Mark. I'm fine. Thanks. Beautiful Thank day. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> James Parrott, let me start out by asking you about this report. I think it came out on Monday, and it contained a nugget of good news uh, mm -hmm. for hardworking New Yorkers. So that is that wages are finally starting to increase. This recovery has been going on for uh, over five years, and for the first four years of that recovery, wages were pretty flat. We saw job growth, but not wage growth. In the past year, we've had wage growth. We've, we've, we've had job growth, unemployment's come down, and we're starting to see some wage growth. You know, it's, it's, it's not uh, gangbusters, but it's on the, you know, it's in the order of 25 to 3%. Um, and for the first time in a long time, we're starting to see some increase in government sector wages. 
you know, mm. that uh, city workers didn't have contracts for the last several years. The new mayor, de Blasio, took office in 2014 and set about settling those contracts. And now, at this point, 250,000 city workers have their contracts settled, and they're starting to see wage increases uh, as a result of that. Yeah, I want to get to that because there there are some people who say that there's no way in the world that, that the city won't go broke paying out those contracts. But right. Jason, before we get to that, uh, what are the factors? What were the factors that kept wages down during the last four or five years since the Great Recession? And what factors are now, aside from city workers' uh, pay increases, what other factors are starting to drive wages up ever so slightly? So. What was contributing to the to keeping wages down, I think overall, is this long-term trend we've seen over the past 30 years where uh, a, a large share of the income growth in the economy has been, a, has been rising to the very top of the income spectrum. So in the first few years of the recovery, 95% of the income growth went to the top 1%. That was true in New York. That was true around the country. Now, income inequality, you know, is not declining, <laughs> but uh, because uh, job growth has been fairly strong, particularly in New York City, keep in mind that the wage growth we're seeing is more of a factor locally than it is around the country. Wages are starting to creep up a little bit around the country, but New York City's been doing better, partly because job growth has been so much stronger here. We, in the past five years, since the low point in in the recession, New York City has added back five hundred thousand jobs. We have not had a period of job growth like that ever before. So, job growth has been strong. Unemployment has come down. So, that contributed to employers uh, finding it you know a little bit harder to get people to work for the wages that they had been used to paying for a long time. So they're starting to, to bid up wages a little bit. We also saw that within the jobs being added in New York City that there was uh, some improvement in the mix of jobs. We started to see more middle-wage and high-wage jobs being added relative to low-wage jobs. In the first couple of years of the recovery, uh, particularly in the first couple of years, most of the job growth was in restaurants, in retail, home health care, jobs that pay the lowest wages on average. In the last year or so, uh, we've seen more of an increase in middle wage and high wage jobs. So that's that's contributed. That's been positive. James Parrott is our guest, Deputy Director, Chief Economist at the Fiscal Policy Institute. James, I need to ask you this. Um, you know, because I, I tend to, because I'm a wonk, I guess, I tend to look at unemployment rates, you know, as, as they come out on a monthly basis. The one thing since the Great Recession that seems to have been a constant was that despite the city's job growth, the unemployment rate in New York City was higher than the unemployment rate in New York State, where people said that, you know, the, the, the state outside the city was, in yeah, many instances, right, right. An economic basket case. Where is that now? Is the city's unemployment rate still slightly higher than the state's? Yes, that's true, and, it, and it's higher than the national unemployment rate overall. What's different between New York City and upstate is that upstate has been a, a case, somewhat like at the national level, where unemployment 
is the unemployment rate is low partly because discouraged workers have dropped out of, have dropped out of the workforce because they're so discouraged about the prospects of finding work and are not counted as part of the unemployed. In New York City, what's called the employment rate, the share of the population that's employed, that's a little bit higher now than what it was when the recession began. Upstate, it's much lower than what it was. So even though the unemployment rate is lower uh, upstate, that's not a reflection that the job market overall is stronger. Ah, okay. And now I understand. Job growth, of course, has been has been only a fraction upstate of what it's been in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Do you see? I mean, uh, and James, you've seen this from from as I said before you came on. From the minute the last vote was tallied in the 2013 mayoral election, uh, and people knew Bill De Blasio had won. Uh, people had been jumping up saying the city is going, you know, the economy is going to tank. Uh, life is going to be, you know, go back to the bad old days in terms of crime. And, this and that. we know that has not happened. But are the city's economic vital signs, given the report you put out, are they good for the long term? They seem to be as positive as they have been in a long time. Uh Job growth in in New York City, uh, you know, continued this you know relatively positive uh, job growth we've seen in recent years. The unemployment rate came down a lot more in 2014. Mm-hmm. That's not so much a function that De Blasio has done something different. It's just that because it because that year of expansion was the fifth uh, in a row. Finally, the unemployment rate is coming down. So. So the the, uh, the pace of job growth uh, is better. The unemployment rate is, is uh, lower. That's better. And the city's uh, budget is in better shape than it's been in – this is no exaggeration. The city's budget is in better shape than it's been since the 1960s. Really? Uh, that's because, you, you know, what's, what's different about this expansion compared to the other expansions since the 1960s is that we're not as heavily reliant upon Wall Street. Now, people used to think that Wall Street, you know, would throw off, you know, when it was when it was in a boom period, it would throw off lots of tax revenues. That's true, but you could also get tax revenues because we have a pretty diversified tax base in New York City. You could also get broad-based tax tax growth if you have more broad-based uh job growth and economic recovery. That's what we've seen. This has been different than the previous expansions in the 1980s and the 1990s, in the in in, in the middle part of the last decade, you know, two, two, 2003 to 2007, all of those expansions were characterized by a booming Wall Street sector, and you know some job growth in 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 other sectors, partly a result of the boom on Wall Street. This time around, Wall Street, you know, it's not in the tank. You know, it's not declining. Mm-hmm. Its employment level is still about 20,000 less than what it was uh, before the recession. Um, there's been, you know, increases in bonuses and profits are doing all right. But, they're, but that's, they're, they're not surging like they were in 2006 or seven or 1999 or 2000 and so on. And yet New York City's economy is in better shape because we've had you know, job growth in many other sectors. Not, you know, that's not to say that everything is hunky dory and everybody is sharing equally in this prosperity. 
not saying that. You know, we could we could do a lot better on that front, but we do have a a fairly diversified city economy. Um, we're not a one horse town, as people thought for a long time. It's not just Wall Street. James Parrott is our guest from the Fiscal Policy Institute. James, let me ask you about a potential unintended consequence of you know the, the, this good economic news. Do you get the sense that as people's wages start to inch up? Uh, maybe their aspirations as far as housing, uh, looking for uh, uh, you know be- you know better place than they have been living in for a period of time. Uh, do you anticipate that that could happen as well? And if people do start to look for better housing, better education, whatever, will they find it in New York City? Well, you know, if if if, if people want to pay more for housing, they they won't have any. Uh, problem doing that because rents are rising, real estate prices are rising. So whether or not people want to pay more, they have to pay more just to meet the rising cost of housing in in New York City. Um, right. You know, and 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 there's a certain amount of housing being construction. The mayor has put a lot of emphasis on on uh, figuring out a way to promote the construction of of tens of thousands of affordable housing units. Uh, so, you know, there are lots of people working on that, so hopefully that will work, although, you know, it, to, to some extent we're sort of swimming against the, the tide on that one because it does look like some people at the lower end of the income spectrum are being priced out of New York City. Um, and, and And hopefully that won't accelerate in the years ahead, but it certainly, you know, we can certainly see that in the data for 2013. We don't have the data for 2014 that allows us to look at that, but it does look like it, you know, it is an issue. The mayor is very focused on that. He talked a lot in his State of the City address a couple months ago about uh, dislocation and displacement due to uh, rising housing costs. Final quick uh, somewhat related question. You mentioned earlier uh, the city reaching agreement with several collective bargaining uh, agreements with uh, a, a huge number of unions that represent a, a pretty substantial, what, 300,000 New York City and MTA workers. Um, the administration has said that part of the way they're going to pay for those wage increases is by finding economies in health care costs. Right. The tune of $3.4 billion. I forgot for over how long. It Four seems years. like um, some some people, some critics of the administration, are latching on to that and saying it's a Pollyannish dream and that it cannot, in fact, be accomplished. Can it? Well, you know, so so there was there was a, a hearing in the city council a couple of weeks ago on that. Bob Lynn, the head of collective bargaining for the city, came in and testified, explained how they were uh, getting those uh, health care cost savings. Uh, in great detail, uh, talked about what they what they still have to do. What does it take to convince people that you know De Blasio can do something uh, that Bloomberg never dreamed of doing? Uh, it looks to me like uh, they're they're making a pretty impressive progress toward achieving those gains. And keep in mind also that that for the so. so Part of the collective bargaining challenge was the last to, to complete the last round of bargaining. You know, the teachers union, all of the school employees, the teachers, the 
principals, administrators, and all of the other support workers in, in the school system, nobody had a contract in the school system. The yeah. nurses at Health and Hospitals Corporation, city hospitals, didn't have contracts from the last round. So the mayor has settled those, and he, settled, he set a pattern for the, for the current round, for a new round of bargaining, of increases of 10% over seven years. You know, do the math on that. That's about 1.35% a year. That's about the rate of inflation right now, and it's pretty low. Uh, the mayor has budgeted uh, in his four-year financial plan to pay that pattern all for all city workers, even those like the police who haven't yet uh, settled the contract. That, that contract's in arbitration right now. Um, yeah. And he's done that, and the outlook for the city budget, even with, those those contracts budgeted for already it's pretty pop, pretty promising and basically there are no budget gaps through the four years of the financial plan wow well yeah that is different <laughs> i haven't heard that we, since you haven't years. heard that since we started talking about a four-year financial plan in 1977 absolutely James Parrott, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's always informative talking to you. We very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Mark. You take care. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. James Parrott, he is uh, the Deputy Director and Chief Economist at the Fiscal Policy Institute. Coming up on 630, that's the halfway point of the program, we've got a very special guest who will be coming up right after we take a quick break. His name is uh, known to many of you, I'm quite sure, it's Ron Kuby. Ron Kuby's going to join us to talk about that Edward Snowden statue that we talked about last week. Well, the authorities apparently still have it, and Ron Kuby is representing the people that made it because he wants to get it back. So we're going to take a quick break, listen to a very small bit of music, and we'll be right back with Ron Kuby. Stay with us. Nine minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. That's when I got to get out of here. So we're going to try and make the most out of the time we have available to us. And right now, I believe we have him on hold. He is an activist attorney of long and storied standing in our great city. And he is also a radio talk show host. His name is Mr. Ron Kuby. Ron, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing really good. I'm, thank you so much for joining us my on this. My pleasure. Um, when I spoke to you earlier today, I said that, you know, when the Snowden thing first broke, I got on the radio and said somebody did need to, in fact, uh, create a statue and put it someplace in the city of New York for him. And some people actually did do that. But tell us the long and sordid tale of why these folks haven't gotten their statue back. 
Well, I mean, the statue itself is, is a high-level piece of, of sculpture. I mean, it's not like somebody threw it together with paper mache. It took about six months to assemble. Uh, it's made with uh, a weather-resistant, fire-resistant uh, hydrocal. It was painted specifically in a bronze color to complement the other statuary that is in uh, Fort Green Park. It even had a nameplate in a, in a style similar to the nameplates on the Revolutionary War uh, Martyrs Memorial uh, and, and other statues there in the park. So a lot of time and effort went into this. It was placed in the park uh, on April 6th or so. It was not an authorized piece of art. It's true the artist didn't, you know, dot every I and cross every T for the, qualify for the Arts in the Parks program. And in fact, it's true they didn't dot any of the I's or cross any of the T's, but, but <laughs> honestly. Uh, but, but they put it on top of one of the, uh, the Doric columns uh, that are sort of uh, on the perimeter of the memorial. It was attached with a special adhesive that could be removed easily without damaging the surface of the mounting structure. And it was up for about three hours uh, before the Parks Department noticed it, uh, immediately threw a blue tarp over it as though it were a pair of... of bare breasts or something that could really damage the, the eyes of the children in Golden Retrievers there in, in Fort Green Park. Uh, and uh, it was hauled away and taken uh, to the 88th Precinct, where it currently reposes. Um, we have not been able to confirm that it's next to the coffee maker in the precinct, but we have heard that rumor. Uh, we demanded the statue back. I sent a formal letter to Police Commissioner Bratton and to uh, the Corporation Council explaining that they have no right to to retain the statue. Um, you know, it's it's similar, if you will, even if you want to uh, uh, take an adversarial position and say, look, it was unauthorized uh, uh, use of public space. All right, you know what? You, you leave your car in an unauthorized parking lot. If you're unlucky, you get you get towed. So you go down to the old tow pound, which nobody likes to do. Uh, pay the you, money. You, yeah, you get you your car back. Money, you pay the towing charge. You pay the tickets that you owe, and you get your car back. The cops don't get to say, oh, wow, like, we really don't like the message that this car sends, so we're going to keep it. Wow. Is that what you think they're doing, Ron? Is this really just all about a political position on Edward Snowden? No, I, I mean, I, I think that they're just inherently reactionary. Uh, that, that the first impulse when you see this unauthorized, uh, uh, the statue, which clearly is controversial. It was designed to be controversial. I mean, the, the Revolutionary War Martyrs Monument commemorates the, the traitors who rose up against their rightful masters, the British, <laughs> yeah. uh, were arrested for that and perished uh, on board ships. Uh, uh, and, and many of their remains are actually interred at that location. And, and so, you know, it was cho that location was chosen to sort of spark a conversation about the nature of treason and the nature of patriotism in uh, a, a changing society. Uh, so I, I think that, that they, they immediately knew who it was. They knew it was controversial. And instead of doing a number of things, I mean, they could have contacted uh, the Fort Greene Conservancy and said, what do you people think of this? Or, mm -hmm. or they could have uh, contacted the community board or any number of things uh, uh, where they solicited the input of people uh, who, who were interested in the park, who used the park, uh, before they made a decision about what to do. But, of course, the first impulse is to throw a tarp on and haul it away. 
Well, you know, Ron, if you ask people in the neighborhood, you're risking them saying, you know what, leave it there. <laughs> that could be problematic for those who don't want anybody to see it. Right, or, or people might say, look, I hate Snowden, I think he's a traitor. And you know what, that's a fine discussion to have. I mean, much of the, the purpose of art, or at least the only purpose that I've ever quite been able to, to, to see, outside of saying, oh, wow, that's pretty, or, you know, let me smoke a joint and look at the trippy colors. I mean, you know, the, the higher purpose of art is to stimulate conversations and thought about, you know, our basic condition. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And I always thought Snowden should have a statue. Do you know anything about the hologram that came out right after the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The illustrators, uh, they actually showed up the press conference yesterday. They were, they were not affiliated with the Snowden artists, but they were so intrigued by it that they, they got their, um, you know, three-dimensional projectors. I mean, what... What these kids can do with this technology, it's just amazing. It's uh, <laughs> and it's they got really their deep. projectors. And what they did was they used ash, um, you know, to create basically a screen above the column on which the projection could be reflected. Very, very cool. Um, and that was, a, and, you know, nobody was arrested for that. That was a one-off, right? I mean, that was just that one shot. Yep, 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 Exactly. Now, assuming that the city will eventually give the statue back to the people that created it, where do you think it's going to end up, Ron? Well, you know, it's, it, it's hard to know. The, the artists are, are actually going through the process of applying to the Arts in the Park program. Uh, that's a very lengthy process. It usually takes about six months to get approval yeah. from the time the application is submitted. Uh, so that would be a nice thing. Uh, if it were approved for, for full public display in the city for a period of time. Right now, there's a, a gallery that would very much like to enter it into uh, a larger showing that begins on May 10th um, uh, at uh, Boiler Space in Brooklyn, uh, the subject being privacy and surveillance. So we sort of fit <laughs> right in, as it were. And we said to the city that, that look, if, if you can't straighten out the ownership issues right now, why don't you just... You know, loan it to the gallery, and we'll even give you a little plaque, you know, on loan from the collection of the NYPD profit store. <laughs> Just like, you know, all the other people, you know, on loan from the Tisch collection and, and, and stuff like that. You know, you'll get a, you'll get a you know, a shout-out on, the, oh, on yeah. the art itself. And, and what did they say? Um, it's all under discussion. <coughs> Really? You yeah. mean there's an outside chance the city might go for it? Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, look, it is sort of a, a, a different city these days in some ways, as much as it remains the same in in a lot of other and more important ways. Uh, and, and and look, you know, there's all, there has to be some uh, uh, critical mass of of scorn. Uh, that 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 Comrade Mayor Bill De Blasio just can't take anymore, uh, and so <laughs> you, you know, right? I, I mean, at some point, it has to be enough. Okay, I can't show up anywhere on time. I was going to get rid of the carriage horses. Everybody thinks I'm a stoner, but you know, but really, like, like you know, I, I confiscate art. That that maybe maybe, maybe that'll maybe he be. might want to 
call Bill Bratton on the phone if they're still speaking and see if he can't get something done in that regard. Oh, I, I, I think that he absolutely can get something done. But, but again, everybody's reaction to even, you know, the normal exuberance of New York City is, is to freak out, um, wonder if it's criminal, and question whether there are terrorists involved. <laughs> well, you know, you could, uh, would, would it fit in your radio studio or would Curtis object? No, no, I think it fit great in the studio, but I, I think it deserves a, it deserves a, a larger audience. Large audience, it, it really does. And I think uh, you know now that it's a, a recognizable work of art, which the artist didn't really expect to happen, but now that it's very recognizable, now that it's got a history, I, I think it would be a, an important addition to a gallery or to public space, someplace where New Yorkers can see it and and contemplate it. And, and think about this particular episode in the context of our larger discussions about, you know, uh, democracy, transparency, and government surveillance. Ron Kuby, always great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time, huh? My pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the show, even though I oh. won't be here. <laughs> you <laughs> right. Activist attorney and talk show host, Mr. Ron Kuby. We've still got about 19 minutes left to the show, and we got a bunch of other stories to deal with. One, and this kind of ties into James Parrott's conversation that we had earlier uh, about wages in the city of New York. Uh, for those of you who do not know, and I think most of you probably do, there is a push on to raise the minimum wage in New York City. Right now, the New York State minimum wage, which includes New York City, is eight seventy-five an hour. Eight. 75 an hour. Now, you know, when I was a kid, 875 an hour, when I was making like uh buck 95, 875 an hour was a dream. Right now, 875, you can't live in New York City making 875 an hour. You can't. You simply cannot. That comes out to 1400 bucks a month before taxes. Now, in a poor neighborhood in the Bronx, the rent is going to run you about a grand. So you're starting out with, and a Metro card is $116, assuming that, you know, you got to get back and forth unless you can walk to your job. So the cost of living, and of course, there's food, there's this, there's incidentals, there's all these other things. So 875 is going to get you around the corner in this town. So there's talk now of raising the city minimum wage to $15 an hour. The other day, Controller Scott Stringer issued a report on the economic effects of a $15 minimum wage. Mainly, And by the way, this wouldn't happen all in one shot. It would go up to $12.75 in 2017, $13.75 in 2018, and $15 bucks in 2019 uh, toward the end of this decade. Um, it got shot down by the Republicans during budget negotiations. But Scott Stringer says, and I'm quoting here, it is an economic imperative for our city. And he says it would put $10 billion into the pockets of nearly one and a half million workers in the city of New York. Now, who could be against that? And by the way, uh, before I go any further with this, I invite your phone calls at 888-874-874. 4888-888-874-4888. Now, what are the typical arguments against raising the minimum wage? What do people say? Well, 
it's going to hurt employment. Employers are going to be stretched, especially small business people, and they're not going to be able to make ends meet. Therefore, they're going to have to either lay off people or cut their hours, and it will end up hurting the very people it's supposed to benefit. Which, by the way, is a classic argument that is not just used when discussing the minimum wage. It's going to hurt the very people it's supposed to help. Now, if you make anywhere near 15 bucks an hour now, or if you make less than 15 bucks an hour, this argument is absurd on its face. Absurd. Assuming that your employer is not going to come and dust you the day this kind of thing goes into effect, it means more money in your pocket. It means just a little bit toward helping to make ends meet. It doesn't mean you're going to go out and buy a Mercedes Benz. It doesn't mean your kids are all going to be wearing Jordans or whatever whatever the latest sneaker is. I have no idea. It's not about that. It's about making ends meet. So that, for example, if you live in an apartment that's, that's uh, costing you $1,000 a month, the landlord comes along and says, you know what, we're raising it to 1200 because we can uh, at least you might have a shot at paying that rent, paying that additional rent. Now, not everybody's able to do that because, you know, we got rent stabilization and the rest of that. I'm not stupid. I know that most landlords can't walk in the door and say, I'm increasing the rent by 200 bucks a month, unless they're, unless you happen to be a commercial tenant. Then they can raise it as much or as little as they want. But here's the thing. And, and you know, the controller, I got to give him credit for this. He details all this stuff. New York City has the nation's highest cost of living when adjusted uh, and, and, and when adjusted for, for the high cost of living. The city's minimum wage is the lowest of any major U.S. city. Let me say that again. New York City has the highest cost of living, and when you adjust for cost of living, the minimum wage in New York City is the lowest of any major U.S. city. Queens would see the biggest benefit of a $15 an hour wage with 456, that's almost a half million workers, seeing $3.2 billion in additional income. Brooklyn comes in a close second with 453,000 workers and $3.3 billion in income. Workers in food services, retail trade, and home health care would see average weekly wage increases raise, uh, ranging from 113 to $149 by 2019. The increase in the wage would decrease the amount spent. And this is the part that a lot of people that criticize raising the minimum wage, they conveniently overlook this. Money spent for food stamps, Medicaid, and, and, and government welfare programs would decrease by 200 to $500 million a year. And households receiving the minimum wage increase would be expected to pay approximately $250 million in additional New York City income taxes. So, I mean, you know, it would reduce the number of households earning less than $30,000 by 169000 and the number of households earning between ten dollars to $30,000 by 44%. These are all positive signs. Now, you know, the, the objections, and I mentioned this before, it will end up shrinking total employment because employers will switch to using more technology. You can do that in a fast food restaurant. Maybe you can. You know, people like microwave food or whatever. Uh, it hurts small businesses. 
According to uh, Controller Stringer's report, neither of these objections are true. The majority of economists have concluded the unemployment effects are negligible. And a number of cities, including Seattle, have seen the minimum wage go up and have still seen strong business growth. So, you know, there's really nothing to fear from uh, a higher minimum wage. And, you know, Andrew Cuomo, uh, the governor of our great state, seems to be a little hesitant about this one. He just got reelected, so I guess he can afford to. But uh, one would think he might want to rethink that one. Does the name Blackwater mean anything to people in this audience? And again, our number is 888-874-4888, whatever may be on your mind. Uh, Four former Blackwater security contractors were sentenced on Monday. They were among several private American security guards who fired into Baghdad's crowded uh, Nisour Square on September 16, 2007. Last October, they were convicted of killing 14 unarmed Iraqis in what prosecutors called a wartime atrocity. Now, interestingly enough, these four guys were <clears throat> not just unrepentant. They said it was none of this was their fault. One said, I know for a fact I will be exonerated in this life and the next. I'm very sorry for the loss of life, but I cannot say in all honesty to the court that I believe I did anything wrong. As God is my witness, says a third, he only fired at insurgents who were shooting at him. The verdict is wrong. Uh, the verdict is wrong, says Nicholas Slatton, a former Army sniper who was convicted of murder for starting the melee with a precision shot through the head of a young man stopped at an intersection. You know I am innocent, sir. Well, the judge in this case didn't think they were innocent. One was sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison. That would be Nicholas Slatton. 30-year sentences were handed down to the other three, Dustin L. Hurd, Paul A. Sloth, and Evan S. Liberty, ironically enough. Fifth former guard, Jeremy Ridgway of California, pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and testified against his former colleagues. Now, this was not an easy job for the government to do. Uh, Blackwater, during the immediate aftermath of the Iraq War, was an extraordinarily powerful organization. They, you know, uh, uh, the United States was prepared to go to the mattresses during the Bush years to say that American contractors in Iraq were responsible for nothing in terms of any criminality, nothing. So they brought him back here, and a lot of people, a lot of Iraqis, a lot of the families of the victims here, thought there was no way these people would get any jail time at all. The United States counseled patience, and I guess to an extent, their patience was rewarded. It is justice, but obviously, it's not going to bring their loved ones back. So I guess a slight modicum of good news. Uh, 42 people, closer to home, 42 people were arrested yesterday uh, during the protests, of, actually during a, a, a series of protests, 
that took place against police violence right here in New York. It culminated on the Brooklyn Bridge. A plainclothes NYPD officer was allegedly assaulted before he drew his firearm and pointed it into a crowd of protesters, thereby causing the potential for loss of life. Uh, the mayor has, has said that anybody who assaults cops ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing some things going on in the larger context of police protests, in individual instances, stuff that's being passed around on social media that is, to me, uh, I guess it goes between fascinating and extremely troubling. One is a video of a guy who just goes berserk in, I guess, a fast food restaurant. I don't even know where it was. But there were two police officers involved in trying to subdue this guy. <coughs> Excuse me. They tased him not once, but twice. They did not shoot him. I'm not even sure they pulled out their regular guns on the guy. The guy eventually escaped and ran out of the restaurant. Now, anybody who has even a superficial experience with life in this city knows that the guy that they tased, the perp, the suspect, whatever he had done, was not African-American. And the, the, the video was posted with, in the context of see how much restraint these cops showed when compared to what happened to Eric Garner, when compared to what happened to any number of different unarmed African-Americans, Walter Scott, for example. So there is that question. Then there's another uh, social media post, a videotape, of an incident in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And this one is a lot longer than the first one. And it shows uh, a guy. Now, it was an integrated crowd in this fast food place. But it was uh, uh, actually it was a young lady who apparently, you know, sold some wolf tickets to a cop. The cop tried to arrest her, tried to put her in handcuffs. And there was a, a great deal of difficulty ensued. The difficulty was that even though most people in the restaurant failed to get involved, enough people got involved. Enough people, and the young lady seemed to resist the police, that eventually the cop let her go. Now, again, uh, it wasn't a black person. And I think anyone who would look at this situation would come very quickly to the, to the conclusion that you would have to be completely naive to think a similar situation would happen to a young black woman. But it was interesting because people in that crowd at that restaurant in Fort Wayne kept saying, Wow, it doesn't just happen to them. We're white. Now we know how what, what goes on here. It was really, really interesting. And, of course, in that context, you got 42 people. And, by the way, the protests were taking place across the country. They blocked the Brooklyn Bridge for a period of time. Uh, they marched from Union Square down Broadway into lower Manhattan. And, again, it was the Brooklyn Bridge that seemed to cause the problems. A daggone bridge. I don't know what exactly goes on there, but the Brooklyn Bridge seems to be like the flashpoint for confrontations between police and people who are protesting police violence. Uh, they have a, a rally apparently planned next Thursday at City Hall. Not, I don't think tomorrow, but I think uh, a week from Thursday. I have to double check that. But uh, stay tuned. Yeah, next Thursday. So uh, 
And, and I'm, you know, the other thing is that I hope they're really clear about exactly what it is they want. You know, uh, it doesn't always work to be angry and outraged without people knowing exactly what it is you want to change. Now, we also have an interesting story <clears throat> in that uh, East New York residents want NYPD reforms. They had a forum out in East New York. Uh, and ironically enough, uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, himself a, a retired police captain, uh, showed up and spoke to the concerns of the people. In the and, and one of the things one of the people who came there said was, uh, we want the same kind of policing that they have on Park Avenue, on Park Place in Brooklyn. In other words, equality of policing. Now, I don't know exactly, and I don't want to put words in, in Bill Bratton's mouth. I don't know exactly how he would respond to that. Uh, I was talking with someone who was in, uh, worked in narcotics here in New York City. Uh, earlier today, as a matter of fact, dear friend, hadn't talked to him in a while. And he said, look, you know, when I worked narcotics, we didn't target white people. <laughs> we just didn't. We didn't go after white people for using narcotics. This is an African-American, obviously. So, you know, we, we went where the perception was, this is where the problem is. And see, that gets into a very sticky, slippery, and sticky and slippery at the same time is tough to pull off, slope about how cops view black people in general. If they believe that the bulk of crime in any jurisdiction is committed by black people. And, and you can listen to conservative talk radio and you'll hear this all day when this kind of thing, when the question of police, well, you know, they're the ones that's black on black crime, blah, 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 blah. But there's a question about whether or not there is any equality in policing. And uh, it's a question that's going to demand an answer sometime soon. Now, I also wanted to mention that AX educators got jail time in Atlanta in a cheating scandal down there. Also wanted to uh, mention a reverse course. He's going to allow Congress some role in the Iran nuclear deal. What that role is, I'm not sure yet. Cuba is to be removed from the U.S. list of nations that sponsor terrorism. It is about time. And our final story, to the ridiculous for this evening, an Iowa lotto employee rigged not a couple of dollars on a winning ticket, $14.3 million on a winning ticket. Now, why anybody in Iowa would ever play, lottery, play the lottery again, this is a former information security director. He's getting ready to stand trial for allegedly rigging a $13 million win for, guess who, himself. So the officials in Iowa now say they're, revamping the system security so nobody else ever rigs the game. Would have been nice if you had done that before. This guy tried to make out with 14 million long. Time for us to go. My thanks to all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, for the Progressive Radio Network and for the Mark Riley Show, I am he. Have yourselves a really fantastic rest of the evening and a better week ahead. <laughs> 